This is Saving Grace, Living in the Light of God's Love, a broadcast ministry of Grace Center for Spiritual Development and Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world, committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. And now, our program. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's program. Last week on our program, we talked with Dr. Dave Anderson about how to respond with the right attitude in the midst of persecution. We learned about punching holes in the darkness by being happy, calm, and focused. And though you may not currently be persecuted, you have no doubt seen growing animosity towards Christians in the public square, and you may have experienced discrimination firsthand. Well, today we want to continue punching holes in the darkness of persecution by learning how to prepare our answer for those who will need hope. And back to help us glean help from the book of 1 Peter is Dr. Dave Anderson, President and Professor of Biblical Languages and Systematic Theology at Grace School of Theology. He is a graduate of Rice University, and in addition, Dr. Anderson received his master's in theology and doctorate in Greek New Testament and early Christian literature from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the author of many books, including Maximum Joy, Triumph Through Trials, Position and Condition, among many, including the book that we are drawing from today, Saving the Saved, an exposition of First Peter. Welcome back, Dr. Anderson. Well, thank you so much. It's always great to be with you. I love thank what you're you. doing. Oh, I think it's so important, especially in these days. Well, you know, Dr. Anderson, First Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, you were very transparent in your book, and you shared a personal story of not being ready. And I think that is so helpful for all of us uh, as we consider how to be ready. Do you mind sharing that experience? Uh, No, nothing I'm proud of, but I'll share it. Uh, I became a Christian at the end of my last year of high school uh, just by reading the Bible and went off to Rice here in Houston. Didn't know squat about Christianity, but I knew I wanted to read the Bible. I uh, walked on, was fortunate to make uh, the basketball team here there at Rice, and all my friends were on the team, and uh, none of them, I could tell, were, were Christians. So one night, uh, one of them called me and wanted to go out and have a little bowling contest. And on the way, I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to witness to this guy. And he took such offense that he turned around. We didn't bowl. We went back to where you had to park your car by the stadium at Rice, and he wouldn't even walk walk beside me. I lost his friendship there. Uh, we were never friends again. And it's because of that uh, terrible experience, I went into a shell, uh, Christianity-wise, and was what you would call a secret service Christian for a couple of years, never did share Christ again. Yeah. And so that was my initial attempt at witnessing. <laughs> well, what I, what I love, though, is obviously the rest of the story. Uh, and it, so share what you've learned that 
about being prepared that made all the difference going forward? Okay. I, without, uh, what, without the experience I'm about to share, I wouldn't be sitting here now. Mm-hmm. I have spent my life uh, up to that point oriented toward math and science, which is what pretty much everyone did who got into Rice. Uh, but a Camp Safer Christ worker was going alphabetically. Uh, my last name was A, so he came along, and, and I explained to him what had happened to me, and he explained to me what had happened to me because I didn't really know what had happened to me. <laughs> and uh, then he challenged me to learn how to share with others. So uh, they took me out to uh, uh, New Newport Beach in California and uh, gave us a four law booklet and a survey <clears throat> to give people on the beach. And they taught us a real soft sell, you might say. In other words, to know the Holy Spirit was leading, we never asked them a uh, <clears throat> choice question. Like a good salesman will say, well, would you like to uh, have me deliver the car today or would you rather get it next Wednesday? Mm-hmm. That's right. a question where you can't say no. You're given two choices, both of which you're going to buy the car. And so we would uh, just give yes or no questions. So after the survey, we would say, uh, well, that's, that's the end of the survey, but we find that uh, four out of five people who take it would like a deeper relationship with God. Are you one of those uh, 80%? If they said yes, they could say no. If they say no, yes. we could have them go away. If they say yes, then we say, well, uh, would you mind, would you like me to share with you how? That's another yes or no question. If they say no, we walk away. They say yes, then we would share the four laws with them. And even at the end of the four laws, we would say, is there any good reason why you wouldn't like to receive Christ today? And they'd say, yeah, there's a good reason. And then if, if they resisted, we would just walk away. So there's never any sense of manipulation. There's never any sense of using sales tactics uh, to get decisions. And so when someone wanted to pray with you to receive Christ, Good, good chance it was real. Uh, they didn't know me from Adam. There's no reason for them to listen to what I had to say. But I shared uh, the survey with 34 people. 32 said they'd like to know more. 16 of them prayed with me on the beach, and I was never the same. Uh, when I came back, uh, we organized a way to witness to every freshman, incoming freshman in the school. I went in my apartment to all the people up and down, uh, just sharing Christ. And, uh, that was much more exciting to me than working at Ben Taub in the emergency room. Uh, and so I decided to go to seminary instead of going to med school. Ah, I love it. Well, you know, you talk about reaching young people like out of the beach, et cetera. And, uh, it breaks my heart today to see how many young people, and I'm talking like preteen or turning away from the Lord, uh, not turning away from their faith and maybe parents don't even know it until they go off to college and they realize they're not going to church. They're not talking about Jesus. They don't have a love for Jesus that overflows in their conversation. And you quote uh, Kim Ham in his book, Already Gone, that indicates that we're losing our children before they leave home. So obviously they're beginning to doubt their faith 
when they're as young as middle school age. So in light of what we see, how can parents ensure that their kids are grounded in the faith and are able to defend what they believe? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that I think probably in this culture every parent wrestles with or needs to wrestle with. And I would say the basic foundation is in the home. I think the parents need to be able to defend their faith. Why do you believe this? Uh, then beyond the home is finding a church where they hold to these values and teach them. Uh, we had a, we used the book from Summit Ministries up in, in Colorado, where they go through worldviews and they try to show the how the worldviews fail that aren't Christian uh, oriented Christ. And so they orient the kids to the worldviews and what they'll face as they go on in their education. Unfortunately, uh, that is set up for, I think it's a two week retreat after high school. And if Ham is right, 80% of the kids have already checked out by the time they graduate from high school. Yeah. So in the church I pastored, I got the youth pastor to divide uh, the book up into three sections and teach one section uh, the sophomore year, one the junior year, one the senior year. So that at least in high school, they'd be getting, getting the opposite from the uh, culture. Uh, I think a third way, which is obvious, is if you can get, if you can afford, and, and most people can't, but if you can afford to get in a good Christian school for your kids uh, in junior high and take them right on through high school, those are the vulnerable ages. And if they're in a good Christian school, they can... I uh, get worldview there, Christian worldview, uh, and and actually be taught how to defend against things like the Bible's just written by men, or against uh, evolution, all these things they used to attack Christianity. Uh, so th those are the approaches I would take. If you can do it, get all those, you you really are way ahead. Uh, if you have a solid Christian home, great church, and school. Oh, uh, that's yeah. awesome. But most most parents can't afford. Uh, I started two Christian schools here in the area, and uh, they're they're doing very well. But the tuition is, my goodness, it's it's about half of an Ivy League school. <laughs> uh, uh, this is true. It's true. And and all parents would love to do that, but some can't. But you know, I think what you say though starting at home and that's a commitment and it's an investment and it's a sacrifice, but wow, it's your children. And, and what greater investment that, do we have than our children? Yeah. yeah it's really interesting. Uh, in uh, Ephesians, the, the father is charged with raising up his children and nurture and admonition of the Lord, not the mother. But most fathers leave the Christian education at home to the wives, to the mothers. Yeah. And uh, mm, they need to see men, strong Christian men, who are taking up the torch. Yes. Especially if they're boys, because they get their male identity, most of all, from their father. That's right. That's right. Oh, you're right on. Mm. Well, you know, even as adults, um, some believe that, certainly non-Christians would believe that Christianity is just, you know, it's a crutch and it's all about emotions and feeling good and choosing to believe something that, that 
you can't see, and of course we 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 do. Uh, but you you say Christianity is based on reason and logic. Well, talk just a moment about that word reason. You talk about that at length in your book. Yeah, it's used quite a bit in Scripture. It's back when uh, in Romans four, Abraham believed, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. That word "reckoned" uh, is a math term. It's logizomai. It's it's the uh, verb form of the noun logos, and uh, from logos we get logic. Uh, but it was an accounting term in which he's saying, okay. Add up all of your righteous deeds and cancel them out. They're like dirty rags. And then take the righteousness of Jesus, add that up, and then ka-ching. That is credited to your account uh, in heaven. And that's what we call, uh, you know, the imputed righteousness of Christ that's given to us the moment we believe. And so uh, Christianity is really based on facts. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a very famous Christian writer, became a believer by exploring the options for the resurrection. Uh, or actually, maybe I should say options for the empty tomb. Like, well, the disciples came and stole the body. Or, well, he was, he, the drugs he was given just caused him to, it's what's called the swoon theory, uh, pass out for a time on the cross. And after they carried him away, he came out of his drug and new state and went away. Well, he went through all the different options and not a single one of them made sense. Especially why would all these guys die for something that they knew to be a lie? Really? You know, yes. People, people don't, don't do that. Not especially it. all 12, you know. And so <clears throat> he wound up with the only thing left that made any sense and that was that Jesus rose from the grave. And so that's viewed as an objective fact. Uh, yes. It's called an apagogical proof. Uh, it's used in logic in many areas. So, uh, in my life, I have to say, and this is not something I would pass on or tell anyone else they have to have, but I remember well when I became a believer, I remember the sense of forgiveness for my sins that I had. And I can never forget that. I can't get that out of my mind any more than Paul could get his experience out of his mind. Mm. So when he yeah. began to share his testimony, uh, he would talk about the resurrection, but he would also talk about what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And so I don't think we can project our own personal experience on anyone else. For right. example, my wow. children became believers at a very, very early age. They can't remember Jesus appearing as a white light, falling down to the ground, and all that stuff. Right, but they right. know, know that they believe, and their faith is built on the facts of Scripture. Uh, mm -hmm. So, again, it's faith in, in the Bible itself. It's challenged all over the place, but no one has yet proved an area where it's deficient in terms of accuracy for history or even science. It doesn't proclaim to be a science book. But Genesis 1 does not conflict uh, with science. It's just been right. interpreted in ways over the years that conflicts with science. Yeah. Wow. So the further you go with Christianity, it's the only thing that makes sense. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely does. 
And that's well, so Doctor, yeah. So, Doctor Anderson, what would you say is the reason for the hope that is within you? Well, I just gave it to you. That's uh, what I think too. Yeah. Yeah. Both both the facts that I see yeah. and yes. my own personal experience that backs it up. Yes. I yes. I wouldn't base it on personal experience. I base it on the facts. But the, uh, you might say the facts are primary evidence and the, uh, experience is secondary corroborating evidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, my life changed just instantly, yes. uh, yes. supernaturally, and it's been changed ever since. So I can't deny that. <laughs> No. And in our testimonies, others can't deny our testimony. Our testimony is ours. And, and, right. and when we know the life change that took place in our heart and in our life and beautiful thing. Mm. Well, so in sharing the reason for our hope, uh, if sharing the reason for our hope is, is like planting the seed, if you will, then we have to talk about preparing the soil. Uh, Peter says with meekness and fear. So what does that look like? Well, you know, meekness is often uh, viewed as a Mr. Milk Toast uh, guy out in Hollywood somewhere. Uh, <laughs> no, no spine, uh, no backbone. But that's not its meaning at all uh, in the Greek world. It talked about like a horse that was used of a horse who had been broken. The horse hadn't lost any of its power. It hadn't lost any of its speed. But it had been broken in the sense of it's now obedient. It can be directed. Uh, it can still use its speed, its power, uh, for any particular reason. It hasn't lost it, but it's controlled now. And so I view meekness as a controlled power. Uh, controlled power. And so I think that's uh, what we have. But when it comes to witnessing, I think it also talks about an attitude that's not overbearingly forceful. Mm -hmm. uh, because though you might break the power of the horse, you haven't broken his spirit. So I think it's easy to slip into what I call in-your-face grace. Oh. And uh, we have the greatest message in the world, and we don't have to get in people's faces about it. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to be argumentative. So I like to think of us being a soft bulb instead of a headlight. If you come up to a headlight right in your face, you want to turn away. Uh, but if you see a soft bulb, it may draw you in. Mm, love that analogy. That's good. That's good. Well, you even tell us in your book that even our pets can teach us about how to influence people. Yeah. So what can we learn from Fido, Dr. Anderson? Fido? Oh, my. Well, first of all, Fido is a uh, very loving, unconditionally love. Uh, mm. Does Fido have? In fact, someone uh, said that uh, he wanted his goal in life was to become the kind of person his dog thought he was. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> One of my deepest regrets in my childhood, a painful thing I'll never forget, is when the dog I loved dearly, I was playing a 
baseball with some friends, and this dog named Peppy came in and stole the ball. And we chased him all over the field and couldn't get it back. And then I'm very ashamed of what I did, but I was embarrassed that my dog had taken the ball. So I took a baseball bat and I slung it sideways and I hit Peppy. Really hurt him. He was crying, screaming, not screaming, but howling, I guess. And he crawled under a bush to hide. And I remember going up to within about 10 feet of the bush, begging him to come out. And slowly he came out, inch by inch, belly on the ground, shuffling along, came up and put his nozzle on my foot. I said, oh, my gosh. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I'll never forget that kind of love. In fact, it brings tears to my eyes as I talk about it. Of course. You know, 70 years later, my goodness. Uh, so unconditional love they give us. They're also uh, very warm. Uh, have some people across the street that have two big Labradors, Mudbone and Riley. And I walk around 10, 10.30 at night, and they wait for me. And I don't know how they hear me walk by, but if I walk by and don't stop to pet them, they howl <laughs> until I come up. And there's an iron gate surrounding the, I mean, an iron fence surrounding the house. So I put my hand through the uh, iron gate, and I pat them. And then uh, I, I learned over the years to bring them uh, pork chop bones. For some sort of old treat. That's why they and love that, you. <laughs> that, yeah, that made him howl even louder if I didn't have any. <laughs> but anyway, they're very warm, and I think I think that's uh, something we need to try to do as we share uh, with others. Because uh, Riley, in particular, even if I didn't have a bone, when I'd come, he was apparently waiting all day because he would start shaking. He was so happy, and. Uh, that did something to me. It, it, I didn't want to miss him. I didn't. I looked forward to it. Of and, course, of course. You know, do, you know, do you look forward to someone who knocks on your door and, and you open the door and they say, "Did you know you're a miserable sinner bound for hell?" Well, Camps yeah. Crusade changed that by saying, "God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life." That's much more appealing, and that's something I think dogs or other pets can do very well. They're also not threatening. You know, a threatening person is an intimidating person. And, uh, you know, you may choose to listen to an intimidating person, but not because you want to. You're afraid not to. You can scarcely wait till you get away. And so uh, I train people to witness like I was trained. And we found if you come at people in the right way, uh, we would go door to door. Uh, it was easy to get in their home. We get in four out of five of them. And the difficult thing was getting out of their home. Once you began talking about spiritual things, they just wanted to go on and on. And so what I'm suggesting here is be a Labrador retriever instead of a Rottweiler. Rottweilers aren't necessarily too accepting or acceptable or appealing. And finally, uh, value. I think our pets value us highly. Our pets don't across come across as superior uh, to us, but we might just be the most important uh, person in the world to them. And so the Bible claims that every person is created in the image of God and has equal value, and we should value everyone equally. 
like Romans 12, as it's going into the horizontal relationships with Christians, says, don't think too highly of yourself. We're all of equal value in the eyes of God. So that's an important truth to carry forward if we're going to witness. You should value each and every person. That's something Christianity brings to the table in communism and all the socialisms and different governments they try to set up. It's not the value of the individual. The value is the state and the state. The individual lives for the state. The individual is expendable. So Christianity Christianity says if you were the only person to believe, Christ would have died for you. Think about that. That's what God thinks of you. (laughs) Yes, yes. I love that. And I love the analogy with the pets because uh, everyone can go, oh, yeah, that is the way my dog is. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if only only we could become that way. Yes. That unconditional love, uh, the warmness of our heart valuing the others and then no that no fear of, of intimidation which some people that's uh, why they don't want to be around christians they feel like they're being intimidated and uh so very very good well you know after telling uh, us to plant seeds and prepare the soil peter also says to have a good conscience so that when they defame you as evildoers those who revile your good conduct in Christ would be ashamed. For it's better if the will, uh, if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You call this pouring on the salt. In our closing moment, Dr. Uh, Anderson, if you could explain to us how we need to pour on the salt. Well, salt was used for a lot of things. Uh, obviously, it gave taste uh, to food. But it was also used as a fertilizer, and that's the way I'm using it here. Because we're talking about soil here, we're supposed to uh, uh, prepare the soil. And by pouring on the soil, we're putting some fertilizer out there. The way that uh, uh, comes across in our life is to live a good life. Uh, As others observe our good life, it's like fertilizer. It helps prepare the soil for the uh, uh, receiving of, of the seed. And so God didn't tell us to, uh, he said to plant the seed. He didn't say plant a sword. Uh, he said pour on the seed and, and pour on the salt, I mean. And so I think that's uh, a very important part of preparing someone to hear. And I think I gave the illustration of a guy in my church who uh, asked me to go out and play golf. And he'd never done that before. And on the fourth T, well, fourth fairway, he said, you know, I've been coming to your church for a while, and uh, whatever Trey, Trey was our worship leader, whatever Trey is, I want, I want, whatever he has, I want it. And, of course, Trey had a a very positive, warm, winsome personality, and he just drew people to Jesus like a magnet. And it was interesting, when uh, when he came to me, he didn't say, tell me about Jesus. He said, tell me how to get what Trey had. So Trey's life was fertilizer. Mm-hmm. That drew, prepared the soil. He became a Christian, and uh, he's been part of that church for the last 25 years. That's a beautiful story. Well, thank you, Dr. Anderson, for two weeks of really great discussion uh, about our role as lamplighters. I love that. 
I hope our discussion has motivated you, our listener, to check out our program notes to learn more about Dr. Anderson, his book, Saving the Save, and the many others he's written. We invite you to consider the many courses we offer here at Grace School of Theology. Go to gsot.edu, that's gsot.edu, and learn about all the wonderful things we do here. Well, we are so glad you tuned in today. Tell others about saving grace, and remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You've been listening to Saving Grace. For more information about Grace Center for Spiritual Development or this program, visit our website at gsot.edu slash center or download the Grace app through your smartphone. Views expressed on this program may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.